Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Us Without Them. This week, we're talking about disaster tourism. For some, a favorite track, a, a very catchy one at that. Um, I don't know about the two of you, but if I were to make a playlist of only 10 songs of Me Without You's catalog to show someone what they sound like, I would usually include this song. It's got a great hook. The energy yeah. builds really interestingly. Yeah, fantastic good choice. I think it's a good choice, yeah, because it, it showcases Aaron's singing voice. Um, Very but then well. it also has, you know, uh, you know, sections that are, I think, very paradigmatic of his speaking, shouting voice yes. as well, without being too intense. You know? Yes. Yeah. So I, I do think it's a good song to show people who've never heard the band before. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it moves in an interesting way. And we also get, um, it, it's not the first time we've heard a lot of the vocal stylings or styles of the rest of the band, but I don't know. It's just emblematic of it. Paradigmatic. Well, talking about vocal style, because I think it's so significant to mark where these changes in the vocals are in their career. This is the first song that we get Aaron singing in a really plain upfront spot Mm -hmm. in in A to B life, it was a revelation to me while prepping that season that you could hear Aaron's voice really low, both in pitch mm-hmm. level and also low in the mix, and everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. Yeah. Um, and for me, I remember from the time that this album came out up until just thinking about this song this morning. This is, again, one of these like day of revelations Mm -hmm. oh the beginning of the song actually is aaron singing i always Mm -hmm. thought that the only place that you got his singing voice with a melody was was in the very last track in son of a widow um but i i'm pretty sure it's him at the beginning here is is he doubled with somebody he might be doubled together he he, he might be doubled he might be just they might have just double tracked him uh yeah not entirely sure there i'm sure when they play it live if it's not doubled, it's tripled with probably Brandon and Greg singing it yeah. along with him, you know, uh, which yeah. is so fun to hear. Uh, really great harmonies going on there. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get into the first line of the song, please, yeah. Before we even get into the music of the song, Joel, what in the world is this title? Yeah. <laughs> well, so, uh, I mean, disaster tourism usually refers to the idea of going to a place where some sort of natural disaster has befallen and like taking it all in, right? So it's not um, it's not a positive thing. <laughs> that right. that is for sure. Um, it's it's uh, bad. It's a bad thing to do. You do not want to be a disaster tourist, like. Um, you know, people who, you know, go to like, uh, someplace in the aftermath of a hurricane or a tornado to like, see the damage, um, you know, that's, that's what disaster, right. Yeah. Yeah. Not to help. Uh, that's what disaster tourism is. Um, and it's, you know, the song, I think just, I think most people know this already, but just 
straightforwardly, the song is more or less about uh, Aaron's experience in Amsterdam in the red light district. Um, and so it's an interesting choice of title, right? Because I think that throughout the track, he's sort of wrestling with kind of like the morality of the lust that is uh, just kind of on full display out in the open with legalized sex work in Amsterdam. Um, so he's wrestling with that. And then at the same time, it, the whole, that whole reflection, that whole wrestling is framed by this title, disaster tourism. Right. Mm. So it's in many ways, I think you can read it as a kind of negative comment on Mm -hmm. like, again, as with so many of of the songs that we've that we've talked about, you know, throughout this whole series, um, Aaron's narrator character or himself or whatever seems to be of sort of two minds sometimes about his own feelings, right? And mm-hmm. um, and very sort of self aware and self reflective about the potential negativity, I guess you could say, um, of his his feelings in particular his religious leanings i guess um you know so so yeah that's that's uh what i take from from the title that's how i understand the title yeah yeah and uh i can back that up having spent uh, a good amount of time I, I studied abroad in amsterdam um for a little uh, almost exactly a month and um it is an interesting town, and I, I don't say that as a you know young twenty something who was there, um, you know, thinking back fondly on hedonism. In in fact, it was a a place of profound. It's odd how similar reading the lyrics of this song I felt, not in terms of any judgment of myself or others there, but it was just a place of reexamining what I believed morality really is. Um, because it's a society that in a lot of ways has flipped things that we in, you know, specifically in the States, uh, have, have really, you know, underlined as, as completely immoral. There's no moral way to partake in drugs, partake in sex, partake in any outside of very predetermined, relatively small boxes. And, they've kind of blown the doors off there. And from a top down and bottom up perspective, there's, they've just found a new way to do things. It reminds me of, um, they have really progressive squatters rights there where if a, if a building isn't occupied for X amount of time by the owner, it's then basically given over to not even the state, but whoever's residing in it and they have rights to remain there. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I could go down the line, like all of these things and guess what folks, the city isn't burning down. It's not, yeah. you know, a cesspool. It's no it's dirty. Or, city. It's a beautiful city. It's what, yeah. like, if you've never been go, it's, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. it's no dirtier or cleaner than any other major city in the world I've been to. It's, it's a fantastic place to be. So yeah, let's, uh, let's start digging into this music anyway. Yeah, yeah, let's start by talking about this amazing riff. So uh, actually I have w- one complicating thought and then and then I'll talk about the riff. Okay. Just just because I think this will help frame 
how we look at Aaron's own mindset through this whole thing. Yeah. Um, one, thank you for clarifying both the title, how it applies to the song. Cause I think I had always just, I never really put the title in a meaningful relationship to the song. Sure. It was an interesting mm-hmm. title and yeah. it was an interesting song. And I never thought that the two had anything to do with each other <laughs> Two, I was not imagining uh, Amsterdam here. Mm. So that's really helpful to think yeah. about. Okay. Yeah. Three. Um, because the band are from Philadelphia and because mm. at the time I think that they were starting work on this album, Aaron was living with the simple way, which was this Christian commune there in Philadelphia that moved into uh, a pretty rundown apartment building. And there they were welcoming in people who were living on the street to come live in this place with them. Yeah. And all that was tied up with, um, this figure we we mentioned in the this season already, Shane Claiborne. I'm remembering in one of Shane Claiborne's books, he talks about the pitiful nature of squatters' rights in Philadelphia, and he has a whole scene mm. about this abandoned yeah. church building where a lot of homeless folks were were living in this church that just didn't meet anymore. It's just this beautiful building that nobody was in, and it was shelter from the cold and all the rest. And how cruel the official policy of the city was towards these people who were staying there. So, so just even if the song is literally about this trip to Amsterdam, I think having the backdrop of Philadelphia to compare to that is helpful for Mm. the purposes of looking at this song. Sure. Well, and what's great about that is I actually, in my mind kind of compare those two cities, you know, they're neither of them are like a New York or an LA right? They're, they're yeah. this other kind of tier of major metropolitan area where it's a little more livable in a sense, nothing yeah. against LA or New York. No, I yeah, totally both those cities, but yeah, they're, they're a place where you can kind of feel more at home almost immediately. Yes. If that makes yes. sense. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I lived in Chicago for seven years. Chicago is another ex- great I would example. Say, yes. Yeah. Very much more livable, uh, than, LA or and and I've been to Philadelphia a number of times and yeah. and Amsterdam and I I would yeah I totally agree with you I think that those are three cities that are big metropolitan cities that are very different from either New York or Los Angeles right though New York and Los Angeles are like two extremes right New York super compact lots of public transit really doesn't make sense to drive anywhere and yeah. LA, the exact opposite. Sprawling, yeah. you can drive a hundred miles in any direction and never yeah. see like open space. Um, yeah. you know, just total suburban sprawl and not good public tran- transportation, right? And Chicago, yeah. Philadelphia, Amsterdam are all sort of this mix of those two things in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So about this riff, oh, yeah. what a riff it is. <laughs> the The main thing I want to say about it is that it, no, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to ask a question. 
does this music feel like a continuation of the end of the last song? Or does it feel like a total break? Well, so wow. I don't I don't think it feels like a total break. I mean, in some ways it's it almost feels like a little bit of a variation on the intro to leave. I mean, you again Ooh. have this kind of breakbeat, almost drum beat that Ricky is playing, right? Once he comes in after the riff mm-hmm. starts. So the end of Leaf, mm-hmm. we get that just kind of hanging out, right? Mm-hmm. Because as I mentioned in the last episode, it feels like they're launching into what's going to be another verse and it doesn't happen. And the way that they leave it hanging is that, and they've played this, this repeated uh, gesture a few times, but the, the way into that ending sound of leaf is this set of notes, which is a D an E and a B. Uh, the, the distance between the D and the E is a whole step. And it's mm. from the flat seven up to the tonic of the E minor that the song leaf is in. To me, that is the defining pitch uh, profile of this entire album is that mm. move from the flat seven up up to the tonic one every Mm. song's got it it's what the bass is doing almost all the time is moving between the tonic note a whole step below and back up again so it's already got the signature of this album all over it but it's got this fifth above the e as well at the end of leaf and that gets rounded out and then as soon as disaster tourism starts the main guitar riff that comes in that sound mm-hmm. it's the exact same set of intervals just moved down a step from where the end of leaf was and wow. so to me the the way that that main riff kicks in has always felt like just a slowed down kind of broadened out version of the end of the song that came before it and so there's yeah. this nice flow that happens well i'll just add to after hearing that explanation it, it kind of gives credence to what was half baked in my mind which is it never felt like a surprise the shift from leaf into disaster tourism it, it never yeah. felt like a complete 180 or you know there's a couple moments on a to b life where there's very intentional jarring moments. We talked a lot about that, you know, throughout the composition of the album, right. With all sorts of, you know, tritones specifically just causing this feeling of unrest and then ratcheting up of tension. There's a a lot less tension in this. It just flows. Even if the key is completely different, it just flows. Yeah. Yeah. They both begin in this kind of dreamlike state. Yeah. 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 Which I think indicates perhaps two different things, right? In in each of the in each of the tracks. I mean, because when the lyrics kick in in Leaf, you're kind of snapped out of the mm-hmm. dream. But here, the dream sort of like continues yes. in a yeah. way, which you know I think fits very well with the idea of the red light district, which mm-hmm. is very dreamlike in a way at night. I mean, Aaron gets to that 
um, you know, in the after the, oh, I don't know what we're going to call it, but when yeah, he goes well, back to when he goes back to the line, "Call me outside, I'll come running yeah, down." Yeah. In not in his singing voice, that yes. whole stanza. Yeah, um, he mentions the red electric lights and and so right. forth. Yeah. Right. So okay, here's my proposal. Then let's just treat these songs as a continuation of a thought, in the same way that "Timey Up" and "Timey" okay. introduces this image of licking the leaves, yeah. and then we go into this sort of ethereal, dreamy passage into the beginning of "Leaf." where he brings back that image, but clarifies it even more. Mm-hmm. Um, then at the end of this song, yeah, he's just had this whole section about, but if you stay up too late and what he's going to do about that and his mm-hmm. guilt that is being projected into that mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. what you get at the end is him just muttering this phrase. All I want is to want one thing on repeat. So imagine if we're going to create a sort of a flowing narrative here that he's saying these words, all I want is to want one thing. All I want is to want one thing as he himself has also stayed up too late here. And then he falls into a dream in the beginning of disaster tourism is the yes. dream that he's having. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm loving that. All right. Whether that's literally what the album is supposed to be doing, it does make an interesting read on the dreamy quality of the music. Right. And the fact yeah, it- that, we have this this musical line that continues right into it's like it's like the sound of his waking life like yeah. just blends right into the beginning of his dreaming right. life. Right. Well, and it makes sense too like there there is a connection thematically, right? Because Leaf is, you know, it, it definitely in the second half dealing with these questions about lust and that being a thing getting in the way of wanting to want that one thing. Yes. Right. And here we have a song that is about uh, this experience, right. Of going to the place that is like synonymous with sexual lust, right. The the red light district of Amsterdam. Yeah. This is, this is Sodom and Gomorrah from his perspective in a way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just a little silly aside, because I think we're going to go into some interestingly dark places with this song. Um, Steven, could you play that opening riff again? Yeah. It's just the Exorcist theme when you play it on a keyboard. I'm sorry. But like, it's, <laughs> like just to add to this yeah. dream, like, there's almost a fever dream. Like, it, there's something, it's not quite scary. Like, there, it's this isn't a scary track, but... There's something dark behind it. And and some of that's with his yeah. delivery. Well, yes, for sure. Yeah, the 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 way that he is singing uh those first two stanzas with the layered uh vocal like yeah. octave vocal, yeah. you know, where he's singing in this low register mm-hmm. and then there's this higher register that's further back in the mix. Um it does it does feel dark. It does. There, yeah. It is. There is a, a darkness there. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me say something about the guitars because there's two that play in this opening, and mm-hmm. then you all can start talking about the actual lyrics within that strange vocal timbre. Yeah. Because the lower of the two, two guitar parts before the bass and drums ever come in is is this riff, which in a different register, maybe I don't know if it sounds as much like the Exorcist or not. And then we get this other guitar playing. It's kind of slides down. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And this is another great example of uh, 
panning that they use. So mm-hmm. the main riff is in the right. Uh, and again, for those who may have missed uh, season one, panning is where you're adjusting what instruments are coming out of which side in a stereo setup. So if you're using headphones or speakers or what have you. So in this, they have the main guitar riff almost 100% pan to the right at the beginning. And then the alternate guitar that just comes in with this weird kind of chromatic, like, uh, is almost completely in the left. So it's creating this really, again, it's it's adding to this dreamlike quality because there's this fairly driving but slowed down, elongated feeling riff. But that's all pushed to one side. And then there's this other sound, like something else is going on, almost as if it's happening outside a window. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. This this sound, this... Yep. That thing that the other guitar does. Yeah. I think is going to matter by the time we get out of this dreamlike passage. Let me just just dog ear that page and say what the second guitar is doing is significant for the second half of the song, but we'll get there. Love that. Yeah. And it's, and and let me just also point out that like uh, that, that high pitched guitar thing is a very post-punk influenced uh, guitar sound. And Very also interpoly the, for sure. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. it is. And also the 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 low vocal. There is a similarity, I think, in the way that the vocal is stylized in the beginning here to something like Interpol or mm-hmm. like New Order. I mean, I think of like New Order is sort of like Very New a Order. quintessential new wave post punk band of the eighties. And if you, uh, you know, if you think about New Order songs or, or Depeche Mode, too, mm-hmm. right, their songs are also very darkly dream-like yes. in a lot of ways, right? Um, so they, yeah. this is, I mean, those, those tracks have, uh, you know, those bands use uh, much stronger, like, backbeats and, and you know, it's a much more driving sound in the music. Whereas yeah. here you have this halftime, very slow, like so it's they're they're sort of mixing up, right? This uh, the, the sounds of post punk yeah. and new wave and that kind of thing vocally with uh, their more like post rock, post hardcore kind of uh, beats and 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 melodies and, and guitar melodies and stuff. Yeah. And just another call out uh, of similar era. Especially at this time, you could consider them post-punk. I wouldn't call them this anymore, but The National, their first three records, fit very squarely in that kind of jostling between indie music and and post-punk. And certainly there's another voice of another vocalist, right? Matt Berenger, who has a very deep, rich timbre to his voice. He's a a good example of someone more like... um, Joy Division, who he he was not. Uh, what was Joy Division singer's name? Um, Ian Curtis. Yeah, thank you, Ian Curtis. Ian Curtis was not a natural baritone, but he was singing in a baritone. Matt is all like if you hear Matt talk, he sounds more like us, like a slightly higher registered person. But he sings down here like this, right? Yeah. Um, and that I don't think is his natural singing voice. I think he's forcing himself lower than is than is comfortable. 
Uh, especially in those early times. And there's this like, you've been up too late, smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and, and whiskey all night kind of feel to, to his vocalization. And as much as Aaron can sound like that, like there is this kind of like, I've just awoken, I'm in a fever dream, like call me outside, I'll come running down. So let's talk about this first first. I'll read it and you all can. Go ahead. Call me outside. I'll come running down. Call me outside. I'll come running down. When I've satisfied each need invented by my eyes. I was a nest by a foxhole. Dirt underneath your root soil. When I satisfied each need invented by my eyes, there's nothing like I'd And that O is so satisfying musically. Yeah. It's perfect. It is. Yes, it yes. is so perfect, honestly. Okay. So what do we think? I, Call who's I, who's calling? Where is he running yeah. down to? Where is he? inside where what's happening well i guess i'll start with just a little bit of like what it conjures in my mind especially with the context of it being supposedly set in amsterdam it's like this you're in a new place with lots of fun exciting things and you're a young 20 something in a somewhat hedonistic mindset you're a rock star Someone's telling you, like, it doesn't matter that you're tired. It doesn't matter that you, you're you feeling this guilt. Like, someone is telling you about a new exciting thing. Mm. Call me outside and I'll come running down. I have to go see it, despite that not really fitting with what I want. Like he's in the, the hostel or the hotel and someone's shouting to him from the street, right? And he's going to come running down the stairs or exactly. something to go outside. It, yeah. Yes, exactly. Like, you have to come see this thing, whatever whatever this thing is. Like... Oh, the the guy who, you know, plays violin for a nickel on the corner is here. We heard we're supposed to see it. Like, it could be something as silly as yeah. that, or it could be something much more. Um, and that, I mean, that definitely is what it's like when you are in, I think I was 19 when I studied abroad. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was like, you'd just be in your room uh, reading or studying or, you know, do, I didn't have a TV. I didn't have... You right. Know, anything really. I didn't, I don't think I even had a laptop at that point. Mm. Um, and yeah, someone would shout, shout to you from the street, like, Hey, we're going to the bar or whatever. Um, right. Yeah. The, so I'm going to make a suggestion that is like the exact opposite of that. Good. Okay? Good. Please. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> this knowing just again, kind of contextualizing this with the title, not really knowing why he was in. Uh, Amsterdam. I know that there's a interview he did at like Purple Door Fest mm. or something like that, where he kind of talked about what the song was about. I'm not sure why he was in Amsterdam, but another way I think you could read this is in ref as being in reference to uh, Isaiah chapter six verse eight, which is okay. this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. 
Ah. So there, again, I don't think that he was there for like a missions trip. I could be wrong. (laughs) Maybe he was. People do that. I mean, there are evangelical churches that go to the red light district on missions trips um, as, you know, I think that that's, in my mind, kind of a strange choice. Yes. <laughs> there, there are places that are in much more dire need of help, um, sure. you know, than than the red light district of Amsterdam. But yeah, I mean, well, there's, that's there's a, kind of telling on why they're actually doing missions trips. But um, that's well, that is even to sure. put it in the yeah. most positive light. I mean, if yeah. you think about what constitutes a disaster, given the yes. title of this song, right. Exactly. Two very different frameworks for understanding what a disaster is will inspire a missions trip in two very different types of places. (laughs) Right. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 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 Right. And and when you put the when you you know if you jump all the way down to the next time he says "Call me outside, I'll come running down," he continues to where he's running down to into your vacant, intoxicating night. If you call me outside to their haunted streets, their red electric lights. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that verse and I have a lot to say about that, about that verse, but, um, do I, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think that, I, I mean, maybe you could read it both ways. Maybe it doesn't have to be like exactly the opposite, but he's there to have fun, but maybe in the back of his mind, he's thinking like, this is a place I can be a light. In, I love some, that. No, I, like I that. really love that yeah. because there's a dichotomy we're seeing throughout the rest of the album that that just I have never thought this deeply about those lines. I absolutely love them as an opener, you know, yes. like the delivery of them is, is fantastic, but I yeah, have never thought about it much beyond my own experience as a person who is, you know, I, I probably still have this tendency a little too much, but like, Oh, a fun thing to do. I'm going to like throw caution to the wind and go do it. Uh, like, even <laughs> well, though I would really like to go to sleep and, or, and also, Think about this too, when you put it in the context of the kind of dreamlike state yes. that this is sung in, it almost the the all come running down has always made me think about those dreams where you're trying to run but you can't. Ugh. Right? Those dreams where you're trying to run quickly but you can't, right? So there's this call, right, to come outside and and this this idea like I'll come running. Right. But it's like he's moving in slow motion. Like that's the sense that the delivery of the lyrics gives you yeah. is that he's he's saying he's going to come running down. But he's yeah. he's really like everything is moving in slow motion. Yes. For him. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, and to tie this in with a couple other points to if if we're going to try to find a through line that has anything to do with him being a part of a church or a faith community and and this album is documenting um him finding that wanting and walking away in some fashion to me having no context for the meaning of the title of the song or the actual lived experience that may have inspired it until we started this conversation I heard the opening because the timbre of the voice was different because it was slower because there was, it sounded like almost like a group of people singing for some reason, even if it's just his own voice layered. I heard this as being something outside of himself 
Like maybe this is mm. like, just run with this for a minute here. That yeah. This is like a representation of, of this church community that's actually singing these lines. But the fact that it's his voice at the forefront of it shows that he's a part of that too. This is not totally separate from him, but it's him within the group, right? right. This is him with his torch lit, touching the other torches. And they're sort of collectively singing this with Aaron at the forefront of it. Uh, uh. And then the mission strip thing is not so far fetched. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But also the image of Isaiah um, starts to make a lot of sense, even in light of, sure of the idea of what, what is disaster tourism, but people going to a place yeah. to get a thrill where they could actually be helping. Right. The fact that, he has to be called outside or that they have to be called outside to come running down to help. If that's what they're there to do mm, uh-huh. speaks to something that they're not already outside in the first place helping. Right? <laughs> they're it waiting does. to be called. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, th- this is a common criticism of evangelical missions, mm-hmm. right? Is um, there, there's a very similar term. Uh, it, it's similar to disaster tourism that describes the pra- I, I keep wanting, I, want to say like poverty tourism, but that's not it. Poverty um, porn is, is the term for like, you go to, let's say you go to sub-Saharan Africa and you, you're there to do all this, these nice works. You build schools and wells and things like that. But it's really to take pictures. It's with really to take pictures kids. with, with yeah. the poor dark skinned black kids with right. the pot bellies. Cause they're, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Bad. The distended, yep. you know, suffering <laughs> like, from malnutrition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I think that, um, yeah. And it's not just evangelical missions. Like there's oh. other kinds of, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a, ve- it's very similar to what disaster tourism is right. Where people are, you know, their missions trip is really just a tourist visit yes. to some impoverished place so that they can get pictures of themselves being a good person. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. To our conversation last time. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. like seeking yeah. the good for anything. For the wrong good. reasons. Yeah, right. yes. exactly. Well, yes. and, and look at the next line. When I'd yeah. satisfied each need invented by my eyes, if you don't think of that as being specifically about lust, which is maybe the obvious reference point, but literally anything else other than the good, if the need invented by my eyes was what I think these people need that I'm coming here to help them with, Right. And I'd satisfied that. <laughs> yes. It was nothing like I had imagined. And, and let me just, um, so I, I have actually have maybe um, a uh, inappropriate amount of material to say about this <laughs> line when I satisfied each need invented by my eyes. So what strikes me as interesting about this, I mean, yes, I do think that like straightforwardly, this is a reference to lust, Right. But it's interesting to me the choice of the word um, eyes, right? Um, and instead of uh, mind, right? Yeah. Um, and the reason, so eyes, I think, uh, again, makes sense when you're talking about lust, like, you know, the gaze, uh, you know, the, the male gaze or whatever, right. something like that. But there's also this interesting sort of, uh, to tie this back to Kierkegaard and Kant and these philosophers that we've been talking about, <laughs> yeah. there's a kind of interesting rejection here of uh, like empirical knowledge as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Uh, Rene Descartes, who's another philosopher that we've not yet talked about. We need to keep a running tally of how many many 17th century, 18th, and 19th century philosophers we can bring up on this podcast. How many insects, how many references to God, how many philosophers? Yeah, exactly. Right. So Descartes is considered to be a – he's called a a rationalist philosopher, which means he thinks that knowledge comes from our minds, from thinking, right? He's the one who said famously, I think, therefore I am, right? Uh You know, that that you can – and the point in saying that was was that he said you can doubt all of your perceptions, right? You could imagine that – all of your sense perceptions are actually a deception from some evil demon who's yep. making you feel all these things. But the one thing you can never doubt is that you are a thinking being, right? Mm. That is the essence of your being. That's what I think, therefore, I am means. Um, and, you know, he has a lot in the meditations, he said he has a lot of explanations about why sense perception why you, essentially you cannot trust what your eyes tell you, right? Um, that, <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of like kind of actually kind of silly examples, right? Like he says, oh, if you like put your hand up to like a mountain that's that's far away, it, it just looks like your hand is bigger than the mountain. But you know that's false. But the only way you know that's false is because rationally you have to make yeah. sense of what you are seeing, right? So your perception can deceive you unless your mind makes sense of it in some way. And <laughs> yeah. and Kant uh, Kant and Kierkegaard, I mean Kierkegaard is kind of um uh I mean he I, to my knowledge he's very Kantian in in how he understands knowledge and and rationality and and Kant Which is, is sort of to say <laughs> right well Kant is sort of between the imperial empiricists and the rationalists but got it um you know the 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 point is that this idea that the needs are invented by his eyes right it's his sense perception is deceiving him right mm-hmm. in, in this very kind of yeah. uh profound way right these needs are not they're not real right they're invented and right. as he is as he is satisfying them, he becomes dirt beneath boot soles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I I think that the, it's just an interesting sort of uh, added layer. It is <laughs> on, on this idea of um, of pursuing the good, right? And that that yeah. you know that that uh, that, that your sense perception is is really like a, a problem it, yeah <laughs> that like pursuit. what is the and, actual good if it's only being invented by your eyes right, right. like oh, right that the, the that the good and, and i mean this is the you know part of the rationalist side of kant is that you you know intuitively right he he has a rational argument for what where the good resides it resides in your soul right in intuitively we all know what the highest good is. It's not yeah. something we experience. It's not something that we have that we know. Uh, you know, in philosophical terms, a posteriori. You know, from from experience, it's something right. that we know a priori. We're born with this intuitive, natural knowledge of 
of the good. That's a rational argument for what the good is, right? And here he's talking about being deceived essentially by his sense perception. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. P- positive to- psychology bears that out uh, as well. You know, like with references to when you do things that serve others, you're that's like the highest amount of dopamine you can receive, like more than doing a thing that makes you feel good, like posting something on Instagram and getting likes, you know, for your serotonin and dopamine receptors and all that. But uh, all I, just to pile on there, that line has always conjured in my mind, the idea of like, my eyes are bigger than my stomach. Hmm. So Mm -hmm. not, not a lust thing, but I, I perceive that I need that food because it looks really good to me and that I have room to eat it because yeah. I, I want to. So all the worldly desires, all those material desires that you might want, whether it's lust yeah. or gluttony or, or whatever it may be. Yeah. Well, to dovetail right off of that and the worldly desires and to take it back around again to desiring the one thing, which is the good. Yeah. I have an, an actually short Bible quote. For you, this is First John two sixteen. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That that kind of puts a point on everything, Joel. You were just saying in in a sense, mm-hmm. because if the Father is within us, yeah. Yeah, and I think that this, you know, to also bring this back to what we ended the last episode with, right, I think you can really, you can see here, right, a kind of ethical argument, right, a a sort of ethic that's being constructed here, however imperfectly and kind of haphazardly, right, um, I do think that it's, to me, it's more compelling than, than the dilemma that he's trying to work out in A to B life. Yes. Like he's in a place that is much more, I think, intellectually mature, which obviously, you know, when he wrote A to B Life, he was 19 or 20, right? He's a few years older now. And I do think that there can often be a, a big gap in maturity between age 19 and age 23, right? Yeah, there really can be. What's being said by the lines, I was a nest by a foxhole or dirt underneath your boot soles. But what do you guys see the nest as being? Because it's a nest by a fox's hole, not the nest within, you know, it's not the fox's nest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something else's. I think this line is super important for hanging the whole album together because of what yes. they chose to title the yeah. whole thing. Right. And we have this line. 
which is a sort of a, a sideways reference. Then we have the line in the Soviet, which is the direct quote from yes. Song of Solomon that is the title of the album. And 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 I'm arguing with very little confidence, but plenty <laughs> of gusto that the first sound you hear on the album, you could interpret as the a fox growling growl of a fox yeah uh, i like to, that to feel a little bit threatened yeah. um again because i i heard this whole dreamy opening section being sung sort of in the collective mm-hmm. i was thinking of him th- talking about like his church or his ba- yeah basically that it like b- because because there's this whole history of interpretation of of this of the song of songs in in the Christian tradition of being this sort of an analog between Christ and the church and these two lovers in the poetry, the line catch for us, the foxes has to do with something that, that serves as a threat to the vineyard that is shared between these people. Got it. And so if you want to read all those layers back into this line here, then the church community, let's say is threatened, but it is like, pointlessly carelessly threatened like they put their nest right here by a fox's hole right with this threat right outside and so it's it's a position i think the line is actually quite a bit different than the dirt underneath your boot soles yeah because this one shows a a a sense of careless vulnerability whereas the next one carries more weight of like just worthlessness Mm. yeah yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm thinking of these like ground nesting birds, mm-hmm. but the by a fox's hole, imp- like I, I'm with you there, Stephen, that's implying at least some knowledge of what it is they're doing. And again, yeah. within the context of disaster tourism, like, you know, you're stepping into this place of like, maybe uh, there was just a horrible avalanche. So there could be another one. Or maybe you're mm-hmm. somewhere after an earthquake or a tsunami and there's aftershock. So there could be more more disaster on the immediate horizon yeah. sort of thing. Or you're so, just walking the red light district and the foxes are all of right. the people yes. you see in the windows. Yes. Right. And and I so the way that I understand this, and I have no proof of this, I have no knowledge of foxes and their eating habits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I wonder if it's true that it, it, whether or not foxes – so I one thing I do know about foxes is that when they store their food in their den, they, they store much more than they actually need, right? So they – I'm wondering if maybe the nest is something that the fox captured – like a bird's nest or something. And I don't know if foxes eat eggs. I don't know. Oh, but that yeah, it, sure. That it dragged this nest to its hole, right? That it that this is something the fox has captured, right? So ah. I was a nest by a fox's hole means the fox has captured me, right? Yeah. So not, you know, the, not, uh, you know, us catching the foxes or, you know, right. someone, the, per, the figure in Song of, of Solomon uh, catching the foxes before they ruin the vineyard, um, but that the foxes caught the eye. I like that. I, I like that, especially with Stephen's reading of this whole dreamy initial sequence as being a collective voice. 
with mm-hmm. Aaron as kind of the focal point of it. But yeah. if it's all because it all kind of has that same feel, right? Yeah. Like it's all double tracked. So right. Wow. Hmm. Well, and it it also it just you know again continues this idea of when you are not trying to will the good and the good alone, then it's not, it's not nothing like you imagined. Right. Right. So it's like, they're, they're perhaps trying to do something good or they're, you know, and then something gets in the way, right? He satisfied each need invented by his eyes, right? He's walking the, the red light district, looking at these women in, in the window. I mean, he, gets to that in the next stanza. We're going to talk yeah. about that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and when that happens, right, there's this, it's like they're in over their head in this place, right? If mm-hmm. that's what this is, if there, yeah. if there is some idea that, that they are going to be a light, um, you know, in this dark place, this quote unquote dark place, uh, that it's nothing like they imagined, <laughs> It would be they're in way over their head, uh, yep. and they're he's being bombarded essentially with these thoughts, right? Um, and that is and and every time he is, he is a nest by a fox's hole. He's mm-hmm. dirt underneath the boot soles. Yes, and and whose boot soles are they? I think that's an interesting yeah question. It really is because yeah. there's a your, <laughs> not just a dirt underneath a boot sole. Right. Yeah. And at least in the notation that I'm looking at, your is not capitalized. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the the liner notes from the, the vinyl edition, for, I think from 2019, which I uh-huh. think is a reprint from the CD. And that's just everything is in all caps. So there's there's no it's not hint helpful, about right? uh, yeah. okay. the, uh, the all important why at the beginning of pronouns. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, you, I mean, you could read it, though, like the boot soles of God. That's a, it's a weird image, but it wouldn't be the only weird image in this or any other song right. on this yeah. album. Of course. Um, and if, if it's like he's already been captured or they have already been captured or whatever, if the nest has already been caught by the Fox and drugged to the hole, it's like just by looking up and satisfying the need of his eyes, he's already lost. And so he's feeling lowly. And then it, it, it works as another parallel image to this, um, garbage swept up in the alleyway he's not Mm. now talking about this relationship but he's seeing himself as being that worthless that somehow because of what because of satisfying the needs of his eyes like now he's in this lowly place of just being under someone's feet in the street right so the o at the end of this section yeah oh leads into a really interesting musical feature of this song. Yeah. Um, Two things happening at that transitional point, because the song takes an utterly different musical direction from the opening here. Um, It it both has a, a repeated borrowed time signature shift because we've had it in 4-4 consistently up to this point. But that other guitar part comes in, and then we have this like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. Two, oh, yeah. Three, 
so so there's this borrowed six eight bar that keeps coming in and kind of jolting you out of the the feeling of the song yeah the other thing that happens when we go through those o's and land on that downbeat these notes here are d c a interestingly the opening of the song was c d a going up it's the same three notes that open the track mm. but in that opening riff gets turned upside down into so instead of c d a you get d c a oh fascinating okay so the, so the riff is turned upside down and it recenters a new tonic where from this point forward in the song um a is actually the tonic pitch and we're going to hang out and be in a natural minor the rest of the song which brings me to the point i made about that second guitar part as the song gets going as we have this riff in d minor that's solidly in d minor and it's going to continue in d minor through that whole sung dreamy section at the beginning what the second guitar does is that business um that's an e e c a c a c a c e it's an a minor chord so the second guitar is telescoping the the new key that's going to happen in the second half of this song so while we have this dreamy riff in one guitar we have this much clearer sharper more punchy sound that's anticipating the key of the second half yeah wow Hmm. so if you want to think about this second half is him like waking up and then having something to say in his waking state it's almost like his conscious mind is is trying to like get his attention at the beginning of the song and it just doesn't get through and he falls asleep and has Hmm. this whole dream sequence and then now he wakes up and that's that's our indication we've already the seed planted for what that conscious self sounds like and in this Hmm. case it's a minor And that's where we get, if I may, like cocaine, their green eyes fixed on the television to pass the time. Until their two miles of elegant blinds halfway raised for the watching as you walk by. Look, come to the window. She carries a candle at midday. While the sun's still so high, but you knew better than to pay mind to what people and the devil said. So we have more eyes. Sure do. (laughs) Which, if I could start on that first line, I'm going to put cocaine aside for a second because that's a whole other thing. But their green eyes fixed on the television to pass the time. So green eyes. Now, it's hard to imagine that every single one of these, these sex workers has green eyes. But another kind of famous connection to Amsterdam is, is is the drug culture and and while not necessarily a drug, well, it is absinthe comes to mind here and having just come out of a dream sequence, the green fairy, that is the often associated thing with absinthe, i.e. the, the green fairy is like a, a trope that, uh, you know, they have green fairies on a lot of absinthe brand bottles and things Mm -hmm. like that. But when people are drunk on absinthe, it's has an almost hallucinatory effect because it is so 
alcoholic that you just get that drunk. And, you know, there's myths of it being in in wormwood and that causing it to be like poison, slowly poisoning you when you're drinking it. Most of that's false. Um, But like cocaine, they're green eyes fixed. It's, it's this specific type of intoxication. Yeah. That's beyond just being drunk. And, and for someone who is as rooted in this, you know, attempt to develop a, a, at least a personal new ethic. I, I'm liking your reading of that, Joel, a lot. To be that awash with the, like the endorphins of of lust and uh, of want for material things, that would be an in- incredible, not in a good way, just a, like awe-inspiring feeling for someone who's like not used to it. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, what the hell do I do with these feelings? Yeah. So another, I, I, I like that. I think that that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that, um, especially with the, the kind of dream likeness yeah. that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. fits very well. Another possible interpretation of the green eyes uh, is, would be a reference to Shakespeare. Um, so in The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare uh, refers to something he calls green-eyed jealousy, mm. right? And then eight or 10 years later in Othello, uh, the main villain, Iago, warns Othello of the green-eyed monster called Jealousy. And he says that it will, quote, mock the meat it feeds on, right? So in other words, uh, it devours its source. So Jealousy uh, will uh, essentially will eventually kill you, which is, spoiler alert, that's what happens in Othello. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, he uh, he dies uh and yeah so i think i mean jealousy is a different uh it's a different emotion than than lust right but i don't know it'd be it's interesting to kind of read this as a sort of juxtaposition between the lust of his eyes Right. And now the, the green eyes of the there. And I, I mean, Nick, you suggested that the there is maybe the, the sex workers yeah. on the red light district. Could it also be the viewers the, the, or yeah, the members of the group that he's with, right? Yeah. yeah Their yeah. green eyes on the television to pass the time. Right. So that, I mean, the television, I'm trying to remember, I don't, are there screens in the red light district that, uh, it, it it depends in the different, you know, the different like peep shows and things like that have. Right. I mean, I know that there's like, yeah, there's like peep shows like inside. I don't remember yep. there being like television screens. Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting detail. But again, this is where it's like, if you don't know this is about Amsterdam, how do you interpret that line? Right. right. And so, well, yeah, I mean, I can tell you how I interpret it since I sure. up until this moment did not think it was about Amsterdam <laughs> at all. Yeah. Uh, I, so I was picturing, um, like just American suburbia. Yep. I mean, but that's most of like the lived context that I have. And so that's what, where my imagination goes, I guess, but green eyes fixed in the television I mean, what well, I'm sure the statistics have changed over the years, but it's it's a fairly well established fact that the average American gets off work, they go home and they sit in front of the TV until they fall asleep, and then mm-hmm. they do the whole thing again the next day. Yeah. And so that idea of of any kind of eyes fixed on the television to pass the time 
brings up that imagery to me. Yes. For whatever that's worth. The green also. So in Shakespeare, uh, it's jealousy, but we have this phrase in English, green with envy. And I don't know how you want to parse the difference between jealousy and envy. I I think roughly the same for our purposes. Yes. Yes. We don't need to get into that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But also... We associate the color green with money, right? So yeah. like you could be looking like staring at a television and and that's a different kind of lust, right? Lust for, mm-hmm. for wealth or something like that. Like those are all possible reads on it. And then so for me, the the two miles of elegant blinds, I was just imagining like, you know, upper middle class living rooms full of people staring at TV and they all have like nice shades yeah, you're, you're windows. Going, you're which, going- right. Two miles straight <laughs> in the grid, <laughs> seeing yeah, almost the exact, exactly. you know, there's pink and there's blue and there's yellow and there's green blinds. Yep. Yeah, they're all the same, though. Yeah. Which maybe has nothing to do with the actual content of this song, uh, but just to throw it out there. I mean, there, there it's somebody who's referring to their green eyes right. well, fixed and, on the television. Yeah, and and actually when you read that third line until there two miles of elegant blinds, Nick, I think you're right. I think it is the sex. That, that's why that's exactly why I thought that because there are the, yeah. like when they're on a break, they can close the blinds. Like, right. Don't look and at so me there. <laughs> right. I, I'm not sure why their eyes would be green, like green with envy, green. with je- What are they jealous of? What are they envious of? I don't know in that case. Yeah. But, I'm, I'm wary to parse that too, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, well, I think the more interesting part of this verse is is what comes next. Halfway yeah. raised for the watching as you walked by, right? So, I mean, I think, again, most people know that in the red light district, you have these, these women who are sex workers who are um, at times in these windows, like you would window shop, you know, uh, at a display – you know, at, at the, uh, you know, in Chicago, it's the Marshall Field building. They have <laughs> right. these like elaborate, you know, Christmas window. It's, you it's know, essentially it's, uh, an windows, advertisement for the Right, the windows show are not that show. big, yeah. but yeah, they're, right. they're like essentially advertising themselves and, and the show or yeah. their services or whatever. Right. Um, and then you have this quote, look, come to the window. She carries a candle at midday. While the sun's still so high. So I just want to dwell on that for a moment because um, in the genius lyric notes, right, someone has made the claim that this is a reference to Diogenes, who we we talked about Diogenes, uh, I can't remember when, I think it was this season, a few episodes ago, maybe, um, who walked around Athens naked, carrying a lantern in midday looking saying that he was looking for an honest man. So Diogenes was um this like really uh, aggressively obscene <laughs> character, right, <laughs> who's like essentially saw it as his purpose in life to like disrupt civil society because he thought that everything was just a, a farce essentially, right? So he was, you know, he, again, naked taking a dump in the street, you know, urinating like wherever he wanted, you know, um, just gross. Right. But then also like going around sort of like mockingly putting his lantern in people's faces saying that he was looking for an one honest man in all of, of Greece. Okay. Right. Now 
if this is actually a reference to Diogenes, which I am dubious about, (laughs) to to say the least, but if it is a reference to that, it's striking that it is a woman in the window who is holding the, the candle, the lantern, midday. That would imply, if she is like Diogenes, that she is the one looking for an honest man, right? And, um, you know, I think that that reading, in a way, is it is kind of interesting. Like, it does kind of work, insofar as Aaron, at this time, is likely thinking that anyone who is seeking out sex work is not going to be a, quote, honest man. Right. Mm-hmm. That there is something that is going to be inherently dishonest, whether that it means that the person seeking out the sex worker, the prostitute, is married and or otherwise committed and and uh, having some sort of one-night stand affair, right, with a prostitute. Um, or just that see that doing that is is perhaps not he's not being honest to himself remember the need invented by his eyes right yeah. it's a deception and so so it's interesting then that it's the sex worker in the window who's holding the candle looking for an honest man it seems to be you one way to read this is that this is a kind of commentary on the sorts of people that are seeking out this kind of work. Yeah. Um what it means that it's one of the sex workers herself who is in search of the honest man. I don't know. That's something to think about, but um you know, but then I mean this is sort of confirmed, right? I mean his view of the immorality of this is confirmed by the next two lines. Yeah. But you knew better than to pay mind to what what people and the devil say. Like, yes. I mean, that's just straightforwardly, this is a temptation of the devil. This is. is a deception of the, it's a, a deception of the eyes that's invented by the, your eyes, you know, however. Okay, just as an aside, because you've invoked both Isaiah and Diogenes in <laughs> this episode, I would yeah. be remiss not to read this, especially from the King James, because it's most charming in this language. This is Isaiah 22 to 4. At the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins, and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians prisoners and the Ethiopians captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Even with their buttocks uncovered. Even. (laughs) Even the buttocks. (laughs) Right? So, Uh, I mean, part part of Isaiah's mission, once he said, here I am, send me, was to wander the streets naked. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to, all right, for how succinct we were last episode, I'm just going to blow this whole thing <laughs> open Please do. Here. Okay. So for as long as I've heard this song, and eh, not quite that long because I wasn't as learned uh, the first few times I heard this album, but I'm going to add a different spin on the potential reference of the carrying of a candle. 
And I'm actually in doing some further research today, I I feel better about this one. So I'm going to invoke Shakespeare again, this time with the Scottish play, uh, actual title Macbeth. So in Act One, when Lady Macbeth is plotting Duncan's murder, uh, she invokes the darkness. Come thick night and pall thee in the dunnest smoke of hell that my keen knife see not the wound it makes nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry hold, hold. Now fast forward to act five. Right before, spoiler alert, she kills herself. Uh, For the guilt that she has, we'll just put that word uh, aside for a second. She uh, has been carrying a candle with her at all times. And when she's asleep, it's lit by her. And her attendant tells the doctor who's there that she's keeping it burning in her room. She has light by her continually. Tis her command. Now, that's always come up to my mind. Like, oh, Lady Macbeth carrying a candle. I didn't really make much of it. I just thought it was a cool, you know, parallel image and whatever. But as we're digging into this, like, she did this heinous thing. And that's kind of the whole point of the the play of Macbeth is like how this thing eats you from inside, this guilt eats you from inside, which is almost like the other side of the coin of jealousy, envy, right? Like that 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 green eyed monster we were talking about earlier. It, it's devouring you from within. So even with the sun still so high, she's trying to keep away all dark from her because in the dark, that's where she sees the horrible things that she did in the dark. Now, again, I don't want to put too fine a point on any judgment towards sex workers, but in the context of Aaron Weiss as an evangelical Christian grappling with what that means to do in a faith community at the time, there's some potential judgment there. And I just think that's a fascinating illusion. Whichever thing it is that we're, you know, whichever reference we're wanting to play into there, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, the almost cliche trope of like what happens between the sheets is in the dark often, you know, with, with sex. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I, I, I really like that, man. We've got so many different (laughs) angles on this one thing in the middle here. I know. I know. I'm I'm just trying to like take a step back from all of that. Yes. um, And, and just try to play this scene out literally. Right. Let's just assume, I mean, the, okay, they're green eyes fixed in the television like cocaine. It's an interesting flip in the, the order of words, but there does seem to be something addictive and stimulating about yes. whatever's happening with the green eyes yes. fixed on the television. Um, okay, but let's try to make this a literal scene. Let's say that, that he's walking through the red light district in Amsterdam with, with a with the mission group. And we get, we don't know literally sure. in his biography that that's the thing, but if that's the picture we're painting here and then parsing out who's saying what, where. So we have, uh, until there are two miles of elegant blinds halfway raised for the watching as you walked by. So there's a you somewhere in the scene. Let's pretend for the moment that whatever other layers of references might be invoked by this figure holding a candle in midday, that this is just a literal person with his group. And it could be anyone. It could be just some other woman that's on this tour with him. 
even perhaps if you want to go down this road, this could be Amanda here. I mean, we have evidence that she was still somewhat involved with this church that he was a part of around this time. So she might've come on the same trip if there was some sort of missions trip. Sure. I'll roll with that for a second, even though I'm not sure it's, it's viable. Um, (laughs) But some woman on the group, as you walked by, but now imagine everything that's in quotes here. Look, come to the window, flip the script where it's not somebody in the window who's holding the candle in midday, but these women who are in these windows in this building. And I have no idea if, if they can actually like talk to each other, if they're all in like totally s- separated spaces. Typically there's like but, a hallway connecting the rooms and things. Yeah. But. So imagine one of them steps out in the hall and shouts this line, look, come to the window to all these other ladies that are inside the building. She carries a candle at midday while the sun's still so high. Like one woman in the window is trying to get the attention of the others to look outside because mm. of this odd, bizarre sight in the street, which is this girl with a group holding a candle up. And it's the middle of the day. Now think, what is what is the point of a candle in the middle of the day, right? If the sun is high, the candle is totally pointless. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if this girl is holding the candle up, you hold a candle in a place that you think is dark. So if she thinks this place is dark, she's holding the candle to illuminate the darkness. Yeah. Whereas perhaps the entire world around the city of Amsterdam, etc., do not see this place as being a place of darkness. And so right. this is ludicrous that she's got this candle here. What does she think she's doing? Yeah. This is all fine. We're in the light already. Why is she holding this candle here in our street? Yeah. Yeah, I th- I love that too. <laughs> I really <laughs> I that love that, that actually. I yeah. think that absolutely works also, right? Well, um, I th- I almost like that more because it's it. Thank you, Stephen, for drawing a compassionate line back to like the sex workers are like, who is this crazy person with a candle? Yeah. Like the, it's it's yeah. like the absurdity yeah. of I'm trying to shed light on this darkness here in, in a sense. Hmm, that's fascinating. I really like that. And then the follow-up line then could be Aaron speaking. And let's just pretend this is Amanda for a minute. He's speaking to her after in the last album, she had this bit about, so it goes, it's the devil, I suppose. (laughs) Then this makes it almost playful, spitting it back. But you knew better than to pay mind what people and the devil say uh, about what's being said from these windows about her carrying this candle in midday. you imagine that this line but you knew better than to pay mind what people and the devil say is aimed at not just a specific person on this tour of Amsterdam but specifically at the same one who in the last album said to him so it goes it's the devil I suppose but it doesn't matter much to me it it creates an interesting surprising sort of inverse image to that here I don't know that that's the necessary way to read this part of the song, but if it's anyone else in the group with him that knows better than to pay mind to what people in the devil say, uh-huh. <laughs> and literally, I mean, the, the business of what people in the devil say, that's, that's just blows by so fast. If it's one thing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, sure. That, that you, you, it's easy to read it as like that. These people here represent, the devil. But at the same time, if you, if you want to be uh, more charitable and not imagine that 
this line is calling these women in the windows, calling out to come look at this, this fool walking in the street with a candle, not equating them with the devil, but rather if the devil is speaking internally. Yeah. And so this, whoever he's talking to has this sense like in her own mind of this voice saying, who carries a candle in midday, right? It's like yeah. this, this internal critical dialogue going on um, mm. that he's encouraging. Right. You knew better than to pay mind to that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm tracking with that for sure. So then he jumps into this amazing moment <laughs> where we get the same <laughs> words and the same cadence as the beginning of the song, but it feels utterly transformed. It does. Right, because he go he's saying it it not exactly in his regular shouting it, well, it is his shouting voice, but it's not his normal shouting cadence, right? It's like yeah. almost like he's matching the cadence of the first verse, but he's now shouting it. Um, and I think that for me, that's what makes that moment feel so incredible. Is because yeah. he slows it down right. to match how he sings it, but now he's shouting it. Right. Yeah. Um, which makes it, yeah, just very, very powerful. And so, okay, so I'll, I'll read this last one. Sure. Call me outside. I'll come running down into your vacant, intoxicating night. If you call me outside to their haunted streets, their red electric lights... Oh, I'm on the sad side of a nowhere town, but sister, I'm all you've got. So call me outside, I'll come running down. Then, not another word. Okay, so I, I, I'm i gonna revisit our our old friend, uh, J. Alfred Prufrock, here <laughs> for a minute. Uh, and uh, this is the, this is how the beginning of the poem reads, okay? Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Do not ask. What is it? Let us go and make our visit. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I could just read this poem out loud forever. I love it. It's just, <laughs> it's, so it's a great poem. Okay, so there's a there's a couple parallels here, right? Um, mm -hmm. the the image of the city. Yep. Uh, for one, in in Prufrock, Elliot is. I, I mean. The city has often been interpreted as the modern world, right? Prufrock is this kind of quintessential modern man who is 
stilted and uh, mediocre and, you know, directionless, right? Um, and that's, you know, a lot of modern poetry, uh, literature in general, is about the kind of fragmentation of modern life and, and also the isolation, loneliness of modern life. And so you, you know, you look at this and the city is half deserted, right? It's empty. They're isolated. Whoever this you is with Prufrock, right? They are essentially like alone, right? In this kind of empty, uh, city. And then the, the yellow fog is a really famous metaphor also from, from Elliot that, uh, is behaving like a cat, right? Um, it's rubbing itself on the window panes, right? It has a muzzle. It licks its tongue into the corners of the evening. It lingers on pools, right? Like a cat would linger over, over a saucer of milk, right? And then it, it curls right. once about the house and falls asleep, right? Um, but a lot of, uh, <laughs> a, a number of interpreters read the fog as uh, as a metaphor for some sort of passion or love um, that Prufrock is desirous of, but ultimately is not going to have. And it's kind of like it's slowness, it's malaise. I mean, there's also a very obviously dreamlike quality to this opening scene of this poem that I think resonates in a way with uh, how Aaron is, choosing to represent Amsterdam, right? There's, I I mean, there's very similar language, right? Mm -hmm. I'll come running down into your vacant, intoxicating night. If you call me outside to their haunted streets, their red electric lights. I mean, there's no, there's no fog, right? But it's the, the streets of the red light district, which I think, you know, straightforwardly, that's what he's describing here. Yeah. They're empty. They're haunted. They're they're fragmented, right? right? In, Vacant, intoxicating. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes, in the exact exactly. same way that Elliot is using the image of this half deserted city uh, to as a metaphor for what it is to be a modern person, right? Yeah. Um, to be isolated and mm. separated and fragmented, right? In this way, and we've already talked about the narrator's sort of fragment the fragmentation of his own thinking yeah. right about goodness and the his quest for the you know what it means to pursue uh the good life and in a way i mean this trip to amsterdam has like broken him <laughs> yeah. um in this like right. <laughs> yeah in this very uh uh you know serious kind of Wait, again, if we just keep in mind the title of the song is Disaster yeah. Tourism and all of that, all that that means, right? I think that, yeah, you just have a very yes. interesting parallel, I think, again, with what T.S. Eliot is doing in The Love yeah. Song of J.L. for Proof Rock. Well, and again, wow. I, I want to be careful to put too fine a point on how we define this, but if you want to take that image of the yellow fog through the streets as, as feline, and then we back up to the first half of the song yep. with their green eyes fixed in the television. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, a famous description of how cats are, right? It has yep. very striking greenish eyes. Yep. Yep. And so yes. then if you imagine like the atmosphere of the whole place, 
being projected onto these women up in the windows who are like watching TV on their break or something. But like they am, they embody the atmosphere of this yellow fog coming through this place or something. Yes. Oh no, totally. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they are behind yeah. window panes, yeah. right? They are not exactly pressed up against the window panes, but like they're up against the window yeah, panes yeah, yeah. where they are, um, in a sense, moving in this sensu- sensuous way, right? That the fog is moving, right? Licking into the corners, right? Of the, um, of the night, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and of course, you know, felines are often associated with femininity, right? You know, there's, there's lots of connection there. Which yeah. is interesting. Yeah, because foxes, while not the most canine are in the case they are more related to dogs mm. than they are cats so and, and wolves so there's that also interesting dichotomy because we do get yeah the foxhole yeah. too man right well and but, wow, wow, but wow. also uh you know a, a name the name of of a female fox is a vixen right yeah. and a vixen is yeah. also uh you know slaying for mm-hmm a woman who is sexually attractive. Yeah. Right. So there's, there's that too. I mean, so in a sense, like it's not surprising, right. That there could be a little bit of kind of mixed metaphor going on here, which is fine. But I mean, it's, it's all working, I think toward that, the ultimate point here and and him trying to work out this ethic of like, (laughs) there, there's so many layers, right what am I supposed to do in this situation? How do I be a good person, right? The kind of person that, that I want to be right in a place like this while at the same time, recognizing that like me sort of applying that ethic to this culture, to this place is a form of disaster tourism, right? It's a kind of like, there's something negative about his approach that he's recognizing. Right. So there's these two like competing ethics at work here. And that goes back to something we were talking about a little bit ago, you know, because Joel, you you know, your kind of invocation in, in the middle there around that quote of the the mm-hmm. Diogenes mm-hmm. reading that somewhat some genius right, commenter right. brought up, which was very interesting. And then my going with the mm-hmm. Lady Macbeth. And then there's the kind of more compassionate right. read of that's a quote being said by one of these women. Like all of this is is painting a very interesting picture in which any of the judgments that we're perceiving that Aaron the person or Aaron the or the narrator might have of any of the situation ultimately it's really a judgment of himself yes yeah yes more than any yes. of the scenario and I think that's what the title does right yeah. I mean if, if yes. you called this something else right just sort of like straightforwardly like you know red electric lights or something you know I don't know mm-hmm. something that evokes yeah, the red right, light right, right. or just Amsterdam <laughs> or something right. like that it would right. not have had the same effect because it's called disaster tourism. Exactly. I think you can very, very easily make the case that you just made, right? That it is primarily yes. a criticism of himself. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I want to linger just briefly on the actual arrival moment of him saying the words, call me outside for just a bit longer. I know we mm. talked about it, but in the context of the, the way this album structures its songs with non-repeating choruses, mm-hmm. 
because so much of this music <laughs> yes. is true composed where you just get something one time, even if it feels like it's coming back, it doesn't come back. Yeah. You're, you're hungry for anything to, to call back to a previous moment within a song. And so there's two kinds of satisfaction that happen here because the whole middle section of the song has that weird, funky, like borrowed six, eight measure thing going on. It throws you into this mm-hmm. off, off kilter space where you lose that steady groove because every phrase is going to have a weird rhythmic thing that kind of jerks you back out of it. And the, um, the rhythm of his speech, his, his line delivery in that whole middle section is very free form. It doesn't necessarily fall into even beats of the bars and all that. It's, it's much more like spoken word poetry for a minute while the band is kind of keeping this weird off kilter thing around. Yeah. So we're in a new key from the beginning of the song. We've had this weird sort of bridge section in the middle with this funky rhythmic stuff and this freeform lyrical delivery. And now this moment where it all comes together, call me outside, I'll come running down. Yeah. Is satisfying because it's the same line that he started with. And the Mm -hmm. band has now gotten out of that weird rhythmic thing. And they've locked into this steady, like driving rhythm again, all at the same time. I wasn't planning to go here, but just to throw this out there in, in the history of, of classical music, anyway, the most important form that came out of the late 18th century into the early 19th century and is still studied by every college music major today is, is called Sonata Allegro form and Sonata Allegro form has, um, an exposition, a development, and then a recapitulation. And that's the overall structure. It's kind of an A, a B, and then an A prime, you call it the recapitulation brings back the music from the beginning, but it's been transformed somehow. Right. Okay. Yeah. And the thing that makes Sonata Allegro form work is a, is a double arrival of both the original material and the original key right on the downbeat of the recap. And if those two things don't happen at the same time, then it doesn't work. Now that's not how this song goes because we're not going back to the original key. We're in the yeah. key that was introduced partway through. Right, right. But the same essential principle of musical expectation that we have like both the original rhythmic feel and the original lyrical line landing together after this development section in the middle has that kind of, same kind of arrival satisfaction. It's just so, so good. No, that's a really, really helpful explanation of, uh, of why that is so satisfying. Yeah, that's yeah. really nice. So let's talk about these last lines of the song. Yeah. So to me, there's a shift after he yells the red electric lights. I mean, and without any other context of this interview that you made reference to, I mean, that's the only time where we get an explicit thing. Like, like that would be the key that unlocks the puzzle. Okay. What is this all about? (laughs) Right. Right. And And build your interpretation from there. That breaks. And then to me, that line, oh, I am, I'm on the sad side of a nowhere town is like some other lines in this album where we kind of get out of his poetic self and just get into his like honest conversational self for a moment. Aren't you unbearably sad? Uh, It's it's uh that kind of a moment. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm on the sad side of a nowhere town, but sister, I'm all you've got. Like that, that sounds very conversational to me. But then, uh, man, okay, this is all kind of unfolding here. Okay, so if the sister he's referring to, I mean, again, <laughs> this could be the the ever present female character from A to B Life. Um, it could also be literally any woman from his church group. If we want to read this as like 
right. a, a mission trip being referred to as a disaster tour. He does, he does uh, call, I mean, the right. use of the word sister, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we've already heard brother, right. I'm far right. away from everything good. Now yep. we have sister, I'm all you've got. Right. And that kind of like then backwards interprets the opening line, call me outside. Sister, I'm all you've got, so call me outside. If he's still talking to her, I'll come running down. But what an mm. interesting ending, then not another word. Like, whatever it is you're calling me outside to do, like, I'll come down. <laughs> I'm just going to stay silent. Yeah. Which, in the context of a missions trip, yeah, makes yeah, him yeah. A, a not a very useful member of the group. <laughs> right. Or is he... Right. Is he telling her not another word from you? Like, I don't want to hear you oh, talk yeah. to me again, which is even worse in a lot of ways. I mean, that's sure. super <laughs> harsh, right? You, because it's, you know, I'm all you've got. So you call me outside. I'll come down, but then shut up. Is, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I don't hate, I don't hate that reading, even though <laughs> yeah, it's, so, right. it's so mean, but, but at the same time, it's just another one of those yeah, perfect yeah. last lines, like then not another word cut. And that, you know, there's the nice fade yeah. out sounds. Um, well, it, yeah. Musically mm, already we've wow. had, um, around the line, I'm on the sad side of a nowhere town. And it doesn't do it any justice to play it on the keyboard, but it's this it's this great, like fast picking high guitar thing that we heard just a taste of on A to B Live, I think in the last track, there's a little bit of that in that long sort of meditative outro that we get. Um, but we've already had this like rising yeah. guitar figure in this really intense moment. And then as soon as you get not another word, whether that's, I'm not going to speak another word, which to me makes as much sense. Like, about the, there's, I mean, there's plenty. I'm sorry, I've got Kierkegaard in the brain too. There's a lot uh-huh. in, in this book uh, about willing one thing that like speech doesn't actually do you all that much good. He, he, Kierkegaard has a line about um, that a person can conceal, what does he say? Basically, they can conceal who they really are. Um, by their silence and even more by their talking. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Um, So anyway, how are we going to read that? The next thing you get is, is this echo of this rising figure. Yes. And that plays out as almost like a, a musical question mark or something at the end. I don't know. How do you guys read the tone of the ending of this song? I think, I think musical That's a question great mark. Question. Is a great way of um, it. I mean, we've kind of, we've, we've had a, a, a few examples too. of that, right. Already in the season, I think, right. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm like trying to, yeah. everything's bleeding together. Yeah. But yeah, no, we, yeah. I mean, we, you've used, I've, I know you've used that phrase before. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, and I do think that that it's fitting. I think that that works here. Um, I mean, imagine if if you were emphatically upward. trying to like get somebody to recognize the absurdity of a situation, and you said, "Really, really, really?" Like if you had to keep yeah. repeating that and like raising yeah. the pitch of it, and you get this like that. That sounds like a question in itself. And then when you go up right. another pitch, right, and then a third time, more insistent. Yeah, uh-huh. right. 
Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, especially with the direction it's going yeah. into mm-hmm. Seven Sisters. Wow. That's fascinating. And I, I, I think we did this one justice. Sure did. See y'all next time. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Us Without Them. If you wouldn't mind rating us and giving us a review on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify, this helps us uh, spread the love, if you will. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Us Without Them Pod, and be sure to join the Facebook group Us Without Them Podcast, where we keep the conversation going with all of our listeners. We're also on Twitter at Us Without Them, and we would love it if you shared us on your favorite social media platforms. If you want to have a longer conversation with us, you can either email us questions, comments, concerns, tell us we're full of it, uh, tell us about missed references that we should have talked about and by emailing us at uswithoutthempod at gmail.com. You can also call us at 405-FOXES-05, that's 405-369-3705, and you may hear yourself on a future episode. You can also visit our website, uswithoutthempod.com, where we'll have episode descriptions, blog posts, and show notes. In those show notes, we'll include links to references that we make to other music and books, papers, philosophers, things of that nature. Anyway, super excited to dive into Seven Sisters with you all next time. Thank you. Thank you.